The covenant of grace, and, and you all have heard about the covenant of works. You have also most recently heard about the fall, which is the breaking of the covenant of works. And what resulted from that original sin, all of the sin and corruption that came into the world. Um, Adam is our federal representative by nature and by covenant, God entering into that with him. And so when Adam disobeyed and broke the covenant of works, he brought all of the sin and misery into the world. Um, we, are, we, we are the recipients of the guilt of Adam's sin. That's something that's not popular and yet something that's very biblical, that, that his guilt is imputed to us because we descended from him as our representative. And all the corruption of Adam's sin. And, and you all know in this church and in Reformed churches that we um, very commonly stress the doctrine of total depravity or radical depravity, pervasive depravity, that every part of us is tainted with sin by nature. And, and what that means is that because of Adam, unless God intervenes and does something, there's nothing we can do. Um, the covenant's broken. The, the penalties of the covenant of works um, are, are justly uh, placed into the debt of every man, woman, boy, and girl descending from Adam, our Lord Jesus accepted. And so what God does, as you know, is he enters into a new covenant, a covenant of grace. And um, now, let me say this this morning before we come to look at this. This is one of the more complicated subjects in theology. Um, part of the reason is, just like the, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, Though God is a triune God, and the concept, the doctrinal formulation of the Trinity is something that the church has always held to in the, in the New Covenant era, taking all the, the parts of Scripture and, and formulating from all those parts what is true. So also, with regard to covenant theology, the word covenant of grace is, is not in the Bible anywhere. Now, that shouldn't alarm us, because as I've already noted, um, uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is something, it's scripture in solution. That's probably the best phraseology that we can use. It is scripture in solution, taking all the parts and then coming out and saying, this is what scripture teaches. Now, um, before we look at this, I want to define for us what a covenant is, because this is probably one of the more uh, sadly missed aspects when people talk about what they believe regarding a covenant of works or a covenant of grace. Many, if not most Christians who, who can give the general, simple explanations of these things probably have a very hard time defining them. I was having a conversation with one of y'all this week about the definition of a covenant, and the best definition I can give, and I'm not going to put this on the screen, but I'll read it slowly, a covenant is a sovereignly administered bond. So God sovereignly administers this bond. He stipulates, signifies, and seals it, promising life upon condition of obedience and death upon condition of disobedience. Now, that means every covenant in the Bible can be explained by that. Um, some have said, O. Palmer Robertson has tweaked that, and he said a covenant is a sovereignly administered bond in blood. The problem with that is there was no blood in the covenant of works. So if we're going to have a consistent definition of what a covenant is, 
It is a sovereignly administered bond stipulated, so God sets the terms, signified and sealed. He gives us sacraments that, that are visible representations that both signify what's promised and seal. And there are conditions, life upon obedience, death upon disobedience. That's, that's true of the covenant of works. That's true of the covenant of grace. Um, now, what's different about the covenant of grace from the covenant of works is that God performs what he requires. Uh, Richard Sibbs, uh, one of the great Puritans, said this, God knows we have nothing of ourselves. Therefore, in the covenant of grace, he requires no more than he gives and gives what he requires and accepts what he gives. Now, very simply, that means God is both the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. It's actually remarkable that in all of church history and and even the last 500 years of the Reformation, no one has ever written a book called The Covenant Maker, Covenant Keeper. God is the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. Um, We know that, don't we, from the Abrahamic covenant, right, with the cutting of the animals. You all know that. Genesis 15, God enters into covenant with Abraham. By the way, covenant is not first and foremost agreement between two parties. That would be a mistaken notion. A lot of theologians say that. God doesn't come to Abraham and say, okay, Abraham, let's make a deal. I'll do this. If you do this, what do you say? The Lord never does that. He doesn't come to David and say, David, you know what? I like what you're doing. Let's think about a a symbiotic relationship where I'll do this and you do this and together we'll we'll make this agreement. So it's not a two-party agreement, though it involves two or more parties. But God is the one who is voluntarily condescending. This is a really, really important point. In covenant, God is the initiator. God doesn't have to enter into a covenant. This is enormous. God doesn't have to enter into covenant with Adam at creation. In what theologians call the covenant of works or the covenant of life, he doesn't have to. He voluntarily condescends. He chooses to set that arrangement. After the fall, God doesn't have to enter into a covenant of grace. He chooses to do that. He's chosen from all eternity to do that. Um, now, where, where would we find this idea? And you'll see on this drawing up here, this overarching covenant of grace from just after the fall to the consummation. I, I wish they had put consummation instead of judgment here. I just got this off Google. But where do we get this idea of this big overarching Covenant of grace. Well, let me say this this morning. It is not, contrary to what many of my very close friends who are Baptists say, a a cunning way to baptize babies. That's not why Reformed theologians believed in an overarching covenant of grace. Let me say that again. There wasn't a clandestine group of theologians wondering what we can create theologically to justify baptizing babies. That's not what was happening, ever. Because remember, the Roman Catholic Church was baptizing babies. They were just doing it in a way that perverted the meaning of baptism. The Reformers and the post-Reformation scholastics who are going to be the ones, because really the idea of the covenant of grace arises in the 17th century in, in the Dutch world, 
Um, many have argued that uh, it was first really formulated in a substantial way by a theologian, theologian named Coxeus in the Netherlands in the, in the 1600s. Um, but all the constituent parts of the covenant of grace Say. All, of, all of the elements that make up what theologians mean by the covenant of grace, they are all there in the writing of the Reformers. Uh, Peter Lilback, he's the president of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, he wrote a doctoral dissertation on Calvin's doctrine of covenant called The Binding of God. It's actually an excellent little book. And what he does is he goes into Calvin's writings and says, well, Calvin may not use the phraseology of covenant of works, covenant of grace, everything that later Reformed theologians believe about that is present in what he taught in his expositions. Um, there have been doctoral dissertations also. Ligon, Ligon Duncan did his on the early church father Irenaeus and his book, The Proof of the Apostolic Preaching. And what he basically has proved in his dissertation is that even in the early church, the basic elements of what we're talking about here were already present in their exposition of Scripture. So, so it's, not, it's not something that Reformed theologians made up because they wanted to justify baptizing children. It, it is something that they articulated in order to capture what we might say is the superstructure of the Bible. Um, I was thinking about this this morning. I thought, oh, great, I have 40 minutes to give an entire theology of Genesis to Revelation. Because that's, that's what we're talking about. This is the architectonic principle of Scripture. Everything in your Bible fits into this in some way, shape, or form. Now, I want you to notice up top that there's that little circle, covenant of redemption, and then under it, parenthetically, covenant of grace. Uh, Reformed theologians, by and large, the majority of them have spoken of three covenants, not just covenant of works, covenant of grace. They've spoken of the covenant of redemption in eternity between the members of the Godhead, the covenant of works in time with Adam, and then after the fall, the implementation of the covenant of grace. I personally prefer to think of that upper corner as the eternal aspect of the covenant of grace. Uh, John Algerido, he was a pastor here in the 19th century in Charleston, he has a little book on the covenant of grace where he makes that argument that, that God the Father entering into covenant with Christ for the redemption of the elect by grace, that that's merely the eternal aspect of what he brings into time. So, for instance, when you read books about the covenant of grace, um, Thomas Boston has a really phenomenal book if you're ever wanting to dig in deep on the covenant of grace. And one of the proof texts that uh, a lot of Reformed theologians go to to talk about this eternal aspect, the Father covenanting with the Son, one of those verses is in Titus chapter 1. If you have a copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn there. Titus 1, um, and we'll just read the first two verses. Um, here, Paul, writing Titus, this pastoral letter says, Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now here it is in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began promised 
before the ages began. Well, who did God promise eternal life to before the ages began? Because we didn't exist. And Reformed theologians are going to go to this passage and say, not, it's not the only place, but that it's God the Father promising the Son that as the Son goes about to do the work of redemption at the command of the Father, that there is a promise of eternal life. That's, an, that's a guarantee. That's a covenantal guarantee. The Father covenanting with the Son. Turn over to John chapter 10. This is another place where they dovetail and, and tie these together. Verse 17. Could somebody read John 10? Um, let me make sure I'm right about that. Yes, 10, 17, and 18. This is Jesus' good shepherd discourse. Okay, that last phrase, the charge I have, this charge I have received from my Father, is probably better translated, this command, this command I have received from my Father. So Jesus speaks about the Father commanding him to willingly lay down his life and willingly take it again. He he doesn't command him to do something he's not going to want to do. But there is a harmony between God the Father and God the Son in the eternal council, in what theologians call the pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption or the eternal aspect of the covenant of grace, the Father, before time began, commanded the Son, I'm going to send you to redeem a people. The Son coalesces perfectly with the Father and says, my Father, I'm going to lay down my life willingly. I'm going to take it again. And Jesus says, this command I receive from my Father. So those, those would be two places where Theologians go, and there are many others, but to show that there is something going on in the Godhead before creation where God is planning the redemption of his people. Now, what does that mean? That means that redemption is plan A even before there's a need for it in time. So even before God enters into the covenant of works with Adam, God has already planned the redemption of his people in the eternal aspect of the covenant of grace. He's already determined, my people are going to fall, they're going to need a redeemer, the Son is going to be the redeemer, the Father and the Son covenant together for the work of redemption. And then, in time and space, where does the covenant of grace first take effect? Where does God first implement it in in history? Genesis 3.15, right? Very simple. Seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the, uh, is going to crush the head of the serpent, right? Two kingdoms, kingdom of darkness, kingdom of grace and light, that God's going to give a redeemer. There are so many things packed into Genesis 3.15. I'll go very quickly here. But in order to conquer In order to redeem man, the redeemer would have to be a man, be the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. In order to conquer the one that conquered man, he would have to be more than man. He's God. He's to be God and man in one person. And and remarkable, what does God expect of Adam and Eve after he comes to them and says, I'm going to put enmity, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your seed and her seed, 
He shall, you shall bruise his heel, he will crush your head. That's the cross. What, but what does God require of Adam and Eve there? Nothing. He says, I will. He never says, now here's what I want you to do. Keep the law. He says, I will. I will redeem. That's crucial because that's, that is setting the stage for the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is what God is going to do to redeem his people freely by his grace. Um, Apart from their works, apart from anything that they think they can do or think they are, God says, I will. I will redeem a people. Um, Listen to this. Thomas Boston, in his book on the covenant of grace, says this. No work nor deed of ours whatsoever, not even faith, can be the condition of the covenant of grace properly so-called, but only Christ fulfilling all righteousness. You see, that's so central to this, that, that the covenant of works was, if Adam obeys, he would have secured eternal life for himself and all of those who descended from him. So it was, it was based on Adam's work. That's why we call it the covenant of works. It's not that he would have merited, it's not that God would have owed him something. Remember, voluntary condescension, God set the stipulations. But if Adam was going to secure eternal life for himself and all of us, it would have been based on what he did. Because he failed, it could no longer be based on what any mere man does or woman does, but only God coming as the last Adam and doing what the first Adam failed to do. So, so if you want to think about it this way, covenant of works, covenant of grace, Adam, Christ. That's the easiest way to think about it. Before the fall, Adam. After the fall, Christ. And, and everything after the fall has to be salvation or redemption by grace, and grace alone. How are the Old Testament saints saved? Huh? By grace. Grace alone. How were they saved? By faith in who? How do we know that? Hebrews 11. Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ, greater treasures than the riches of Egypt. Hebrews 11, 25 and 26. John 8. Abraham. Yep. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced to see it and was glad, Jesus says. Before Abraham was, I am. Those are very evident statements. The Apostle Paul makes a big deal. How is is Abraham justified? And he goes back to what? Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. So the entire testimony, think about when Christ came, when, when he was brought into the temple, and there's that convergence of these aged saints with young Mary and, and the infant. And, and remember Anna, the prophetess. She, she went after seeing Christ, and Luke tells us she spoke of him to all those who were looking for redemption in Jerusalem. They were hoping in a coming Redeemer. Right? Job 19.25, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he shall stand upon the earth, and then without my body I shall see God. On my side. So Job was looking forward to the coming Redeemer. Abraham was looking forward to the coming Redeemer. 
Moses was looking forward to the coming Christ. Um, so it was always faithful and in Christ alone. Now, that being said, there are differences under this overarching covenant of grace in time. Those differences are pronounced especially um, by what we call the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Um, before I come to that, I want to see if I can put a different, and you all probably know this so well. Um, when we think about covenants in the Bible, we tend to think about those, what we call covenantal administrations of the covenant of grace. Because as we're reading through Genesis, as we're reading through Exodus, as we're reading through, as we're reading through um, Second Samuel, as we're reading uh, throughout the Old Testament, and there are these specific covenants that are mentioned. They all go by the same Hebrew word berith. The word covenant in Hebrew is berith. They are all referred to as God's berith making with His people, His covenant making. With Adam at Genesis 3.15, though the word is not used there, all the parts of God's covenantal arrangement are there. And then the first explicit reference to covenant in the Old Testament is in the Noahic covenant. And God says, I am going to establish my covenant with you and with all creation. Now, what you may not know is that the word in Hebrew for establish is cause to stand, not 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 cause something new to happen, but I will set it up and cause it to stand. And, and I think what God is saying is the promise he made to Adam, I am going to now cause it to stand in my dealings with Noah. And um, by the way, every one of these covenants is intimately related to Christ. Um, who is in the loins of Noah on the ark? Jesus. Right? Noah's standing as a sort of typical Adam. That's why you have the parallels, the nakedness, the fall. Remember, Adam eats the fruit and is naked. Noah eats the fruit, passes out naked. He's drunk. Um, God gives those same creation ordinances to Noah. He gave to Adam, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Christ is in the loins of Noah. Why does God spare Noah and his family members, because he promised in eternity to bring a redeemer. And if he didn't spare someone who would be the one carrying that redeemer, if he had wiped out all of humanity, then God's promise would have failed. So the Noahic covenant is not about Noah. The Noahic covenant is about Christ. Even, even God covenanting in the Noahic covenant with all of creation, I'll never again destroy the earth as I've done, what's, what's the point of that? How does that dovetail into God's covenant plan of redemption in Christ? Well, he's, he's securing the stage on which redemption is going to occur. If he destroys the world and men don't populate, there is no, there is no plan of redemption out working. Um, what is in the ark with Noah? And how many of them? What is it? What, what's in the ark with Noah? And what other moving... Okay, and how many of them? Well, two and seven. 
And what is that distinction about? Clean and unclean, right? So you have in the ark clean and unclean animals. Now, where does that fit into redemptive history and God's covenant of grace and plan of redemption? Well, remember that those animals are going to represent Jews and Gentiles in Israel's sacrificial and dietary system in the civil law. And remember, Peter sees that sheet in the new covenant come down from heaven with all the unclean animals. And God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, no, Lord, I've never done that. And God's point is now the Gentiles are being grafted in. So even in the ark, the entirety of redemptive history was being set by God. What's going to happen to those clean animals in Israel's history in redemptive history? They're going to serve the sacrificial system, right? The clean, the, the lamb without blemish and without spot, right? It, the, the clean animals that God's going to have his people offer, and that's pointing to Christ and the work of redemption. So everything going on in the ark, everything going on outside of the ark is all serving God's plan, his eternal plan to redeem a people. Now, when we come to Abraham, and, and what God does here in the covenant of grace is he, he focuses in um, in organizing a visible church on earth. Before Abraham, there are believers, but there is no visible church. A best illustration I can give you of this is you know in Genesis that there is light before there, are, there is a sun, moon, and stars. And the point of that is that God is not dependent on heavenly bodies to produce light. God will bring light out of nothing. That's the point of that. that that God is not dependent on his creation. There is light before there are bodies that will emanate that light. But we know that God does create those heavenly bodies. And, and he harnesses that light and focuses it and, and organizes it. That's how we want to think about Abraham. There is grace before Abraham. There is redemption before Abraham. Just like there is light before there is a sun. But what God does with Abraham is he says, I'm going to now create for myself a, a visible church on earth. In the Old Covenant, that's Israel. In the New Covenant, it's Jew and Gentile, the new Israel, the church. One people that God organizes together. Um, now, Abraham, you will know, uh, is promised that he's going to have a seed. Remember the same seed that Adam was promised in Genesis 3.15. The same seed that was being preserved in the ark in Noah's loins is the same seed that God now says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son, and all the nations are going to be blessed in him. The same seed, in Hebrew it's the word zerah, um, offspring, it's the same singular seed of a redeemer that God is promising. We know this because the book of Galatians really unpacks this. In fact, at one place in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says that when the promise to Abraham and his seed, that he would be heir of the world, he says, not to many, but as to one who is Christ. So that means all the promises of the covenant of grace that God gives to Adam, through Noah, now to Abraham, are being given to the Redeemer himself. This is super important. Before we ever benefit from the promises of redemption, those promises have to come to the seed himself who's going to fulfill all that. And so, Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Now, we also know that now we are the seed of Abraham, right? I always get kicked when 
my Baptist friends' kids saying, Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them, and so are you. Let's all praise the Lord, right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot. Because most of, most of my Baptist friends don't believe we're the seed of Abraham. It's the same covenant of grace. It's the same promise. Um, if you are Christ, Paul says you are Abraham. If you are Christ, you are Abraham's. And that means that what, what the Apostle Paul does in Galatians is he ties a direct line from Abraham to the New Covenant, and he says it's the same, it's the same plan for redemption. If you're Christ, New Covenant, you're Abraham's. It's, it's the same substance. It's the covenant of grace. That's, that's where we go to say this is all the same. What, what you could ask yourself the question, what, if anything, does the Abraham covenant have to do with me? What has everything to do? Because God sent his son to be the son of Abraham to redeem a people and to bless the nations, and if you are among those who are trusting in him, you are heirs of the same promises God made to Abraham. It's all part of the same covenant of grace. Now, where it gets tricky is with Moses. And then where it gets easy again is with David. So I'm going to jump from orange to orange here and go easy. And then we're going to go back to Moses. Can I ask you one question? What's the, what's the meaning of covenant of works going on the upper line? Yeah, I did not design this, but I actually found it very helpful. The, the broken covenant of works has to run as it were through all time. Christ has to fulfill it. He has to take the curse of it. And so even within the covenant of grace, and this is where we're going to get into the Mosaic covenant, so Chris, I'll come back to that in a second. That's going to be a really pronounced sense in which there's sort of a republication of the covenant of works in some sense. Um, and again, I know we're going over a lot. There's a big ocean that's hanging there. Let's come to David real quick. So see of Abraham, and then we come to the Davidic covenant, and what does God promise David? He's going to give him a what? He's going to give him a throne, and he's going to give him a what? A seed, a son, he's going to sit on that throne forever, right? So, so with Abraham, God was a stop. He's developing the covenant of grace. He's taking it out. Now he has a visible people. With David, now he has a visible kingdom within that people. So he has a people. It's as if, I say this reverently because he, he is doing this. It's as if God is incrementally just developing things to help us understand more and more and more about his covenant plan and purpose. And one of his purposes is he's going to reestablish his kingdom, which Satan has disrupted that kingdom. He's going to bring us into that kingdom, and he's going to do it through the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. You know what's interesting? Um, it's almost like the New Testament writers got this. Because when you open the New Testament, the first verse of Matthew says what? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. See, that's how the New Testament opens. It opens with covenant theology. Um, when Mary sings her song, um, she weaves into it God's covenantal plan and promise of redemption. He understands God promised our fathers, promised Abraham, promised David. That's why, by the way, the, the birth narratives of Jesus are so full of the seed language of God fulfilling.
building that promise. So, so there's this there's this incremental, there's this exponential development of the covenant of grace. Now I said a minute ago, where it gets hardest with Moses. Now let me say two things real quick. One, it's impossible for you to read the New Testament and not see how difficult the relationship between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant is. I mean, that's the whole crux of so many of the debates in this fledgling church. Remember that the Judaizers were trying to impose the Mosaic Law on the New Covenant era, and Paul everywhere, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Romans, everywhere, he's dealing with that relationship between those two covenants. In fact, when Paul in Galatians 4 talks about the two covenants, these are two covenants, one at Sinai, one that is Jerusalem, the mother above, and he likens them to Sarah and Hagar, an analogy. He's talking about the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. So, very helpful to understand he's not talking about everything in the Old Testament. It's in contrast to everything in the New Testament. What he's saying is there's a comparison and a contrast between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, this is fascinating. While the Mosaic Covenant is part of the covenant of grace, and, and if you read through Exodus, you can't help but, but hear that language of God promising to bring his people he made to Abraham. Those, those promises, those earlier promises are brought in to the Mosaic Covenant. And, and then you have a sacrificial system. That's gracious. Right? You have a priesthood. That's gracious. You have, you have loads of gracious dealings of God in the Mosaic Covenant. But then you have this pervasive, strong, legal conditionality. And we talked about this recently on Sunday nights and how we're crushed by the law. There's nothing gracious about the law stripped out of the covenant of grace. Um, the law demands. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, Peter said it's a harsh taskmaster that neither we nor our fathers could bear. That's how he speaks about the law in, in Acts. Um, that's not, not some antinomian theologian. That's an apostle. So, so What's, what's fascinating about this, though, is remember the seed promise. Genesis 3.15. That seed, the promised redeemer, becomes organically from Adam. As I've noted, he's in the loins of Noah. Comes by descent from Abraham. And he comes by descent from David. But who does he not descend from? Moses. Because I believe the Mosaic Covenant is mechanically placed into the covenant of grace to serve a purpose just for that old covenant economy, great time, and then the new covenant replaces the Mosaic Covenant. This is why Jeremiah talk about the old covenant that was old and growing obsolete passing away. You are, if I can put this as, as high-handedly as I can this morning, you are in no way whatsoever under the Mosaic covenant. So I, I want to say as high-handedly as I can, there is nothing about the Mosaic covenant binding on you today. Absolutely nothing. Because Christ came and fulfilled the law, kept the law, to 
became the curse is the sacrificial lamb. And what was provisional about the old covenant until the coming of the Redeemer is no longer binding. By the way, that's why we're not the honest. That's why we don't go back and say, well, God wants us to take the civil law that he gave Moses in the Mosaic covenant and implement it in the nations in the new covenant. That's no longer binding. The Westminster Confession says that those laws expired with the state of that people. This is very important. You are in no way whatsoever bound to bring a little lamb to worship, to slaughter it, in order to be accepted by God. Why? Because Christ has been sacrificed for you. Right? You are in no way whatsoever, and let me say this as loudly as I can, you can eat all the shellfish you want, all the hand-seared scallops you want, all the bacon, bacon-wrapped hand-seared scallops. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I'm We're going out. You can eat all the unclean animals and, sh- and seafood you want to. I'm not saying it's healthy for you. I'm saying you can if you want to. There is nothing binding about the Mosaic Covenant. And even the moral law, the Ten Commandments that we do say are the eternal ethical standard of God, they predate the Mosaic Covenant because they were written on the heart of Adam at creation. So that they were already there. There was already a Sabbath day. There was already a prohibition. If Adam had cut down the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, made of that until the eve, it would have been murdered. If Adam had cut down the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, carved an idol, without them and worshipped it, it would have been idolatry. The Ten Commandments were already there, written on the heart of Adam. And then we come to the New Covenant, and Christ fulfills everything. He fulfills it all. Listen to this quote. I love this. It's so simple. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, Jesus Christ is the pillar and hinge on which the covenant of grace turns. That means every single thing from Genesis 3.15 until Christ comes again, every single thing in the Old Testament is about Christ. It is some way organically related to him. Even the land of Israel, which was just an old covenant provision for a short time, even the land, O'Connor Robertson's going to say this very forcefully, the land was made for Jesus Christ. It, it became the place he came to where he died and where he would carry the gospel to the nation. Every single thing in the Old Testament, because of the covenant of grace, it is all about Christ. And as Watson says, he is the pillar and hinge on which the covenant of grace turns. So, if you want to understand what Jesus is doing, you have to understand all the previous administrations of the covenant of grace. The only way you'll ever understand the New Testament is to understand the organic unity with all those previous administrations of God's covenant of grace. Now, in time, and this is the last thing I'll say, and this is challenging, but just try to hang in there with me. We've already talked about an eternal aspect of the covenant of grace. That God the Father covenanted with the Son for the redemption of his people before the creation of the world. And then we've talked about how God brings that into time and space. First with Adam, then with Noah, then with Abraham. Um, what this means is that the Abrahamic covenant, God entering into covenant with believers, professing believers, and their offspring, and their household. That's that's a provision of the covenant of grace in time. So in time, the 
covenant of grace includes professing believers and their children. That was true in the Abrahamic covenant. Were, were, the, descendants, were the physical descendants of Abraham in covenant with God in the covenant of grace? Yes. Yes. All of them. What was the sign that they were in covenant? What did circumcision point to? The cross, right? That's the shedding of blood to cleanse the corruption that passes generation to generation. So it's pointing to the cross. Paul calls the death of Jesus his circumcision in Colossians. Um, there is a provision where the covenant of grace includes more than just the elect. This is big in time. This is a big thing a lot of people struggle with. In time, how do we know that the covenant of grace and the Abrahamic covenant in particular, how do we know that it includes more than just the elect? Because we know not all of Abraham's children were saved, were they? We know that most of Israel was not saved. Right? Most of Israel. The writer of Hebrews says that with most of them, God was not well pleased. Yet they were in covenant with God. They were, they were in some sense under the bond of God's covenantal dealing. Now, when we come to the New Covenant, um, and Christ fulfills everything, He is the covenant keeper. He does everything necessary to give us blessings, freely by grace. There is still a historical aspect of that, and there is an eternal aspect. Now, just listen to me carefully. There's a historical aspect because God is at work in his, the lives of his people throughout all the nations based on what Christ has done in the here and now. There's a visible church, just like there was with Abraham. That church includes more than just believers. There's wheat and tear. How do we know that? Because there's warnings against apostasy. There's warnings against hypocrites. And yet, if someone has the covenant sign, what is the covenant sign? In the new covenant. Baptism, somebody has that sign, they are in covenant with God. Now, that doesn't mean they are savingly united to Jesus. It just means they are part of the covenant community. They belong to the visible church. That it will be worse for them if they are not regenerate and don't repent and believe the gospel. But they are still, in some sense, in the visible church in time and space. That means even in the new covenant, Covenant of grace has a broader, a broader um, application than it does in the eternal aspect. When Christ comes again, all of eternity is going to be secured by the new covenant. How do we know that? Because that is never replaced. Christ fulfilled everything. And who is going to be the beneficiary of the, the blessings of the covenant of grace for all eternity? The elect and only the elect. So you have an eternal aspect, you have a historical outworking. Um, I'm going to stop because I just gave you, that was like a big dump truck. Um, questions or comments that y'all have? Okay. You, this is um, everybody's very
But so as I noted already, the Ten Commandments predate the Mosaic Covenant. They're written on the heart of Adam at creation. Um, we know that Romans two, Paul says that all men have the law of God written on their hearts. Their conscience is either accusing or excusing them. Um, in the in the New Covenant, the promise that God gives His people through Jeremiah, He says, um, the New Covenant I made for the house of Israel, the house of Jacob, not according to the covenant. That I made with them, with their fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. My covenant, he says, I will write my laws in their mind and put them in their hearts. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Um, so that those are the two promises of the new covenant. God's going to write his law in your heart, make you love it, and he's going to forgive your transgression. Love it. That means that the Ten Commandments, and, and I will say this unashamedly, are binding for all men for all time, but only those who have been redeemed by Christ are ever going to delight in that. Only those who know Christ are ever going to say, you know, it's really good that God said you can have all the gods. Only believers are going to say, you know, it's really good that God wants me to be faithful in my life. I mean, because while all men have the law written in their heart by virtue of being created, they hate God and they hate his law. So what happens in redemption in Christ is he makes us love us. Um, now that doesn't mean that in any way whatsoever you are under the Mosaic Covenant. Again, the moral law predates the Mosaic Covenant. The ceremonial and civil laws are bound to the Mosaic Covenant. So that's probably what Dave is asking. Does that make sense? That the Ten Commandments function outside of the Mosaic Covenant. The other commandments in the Mosaic Covenant do not. They just serve for the Old Covenant era until Christ comes. Other questions or comments? Yes. Well, the Mosaic Covenant itself is part of the Covenant. It's not a covenant of works that exists out here. It's not another way of salvation. It is part of the development of the covenant of grace, but it functions in a unique way. So it functions in a way that the other ones don't, in that it has both promises that are carried over from the other ones and legal demands that are carried over from the covenant of work. So all the do this and live, if you do this, then, if you don't do this, cursing, all of those legal, and whenever, that's a good way, by the way, if you're reading the Old Testament, and you're like, man, God says, if I do this, you know, I'm going to be blessed. If I don't, I'm going to be cursed. Well, I haven't done that. You should feel that. That's the law of doing its work to show you your need for Christ. So the Mosaic Covenant has a pronounced sense in which the law is focusing in with all its demands. But there are sacrificial, right? The sacrificial system is part of the covenant of grace. God providing sacrifices to point to Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Um, a priesthood, right, that points to Christ, who's the greater priest. Those are not, those are not, those are not part of the covenant of works. Those are gracious things God gives 